make money online. I'm on this page reading about the uh, next logo. Uh, he developed a hundred page proposal book that walked the reader step by step through the conceptual process to the final outcome. That's amazing. The crazy thing about that is it's a bit unnecessary. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like it's like you have. Let's say you have a vegetable in front of you and you want to chop up the vegetable and serve it to your family. Uh, okay, here's a grain thresher. Put the vegetable in the grain thresher. It'll work. <laughs> You'll chop it up. But a bit overcompensating. I, I agree it's a bit overcompensating, but I think back to the story you shared before we started recording where uh, it, you, you tell the historic story of this and then I'll jump in with uh, yeah. my bit. So um, basically, uh, Steve Jobs was uh, kicked out of Apple. He started a new company called Next, and they make computers, whatever. Uh, and he uh, is like, what was the best graphic designer that I could possibly find? Um, and somebody recommends him, a fellow named Paul Rand. Uh, if you're not a designer, Paul Rand is like one of the most legendary figures in graphic design in the 20th century. He uh, is especially known for logo design and branding. He made EG, IBM, ABC, uh, UPS. Uh, Non-TLA logos like the Yale University Press and uh, what else? Westinghouse, like really amazing, iconic logos, right? And uh, Steve Jobs is like, okay, great. So what can you do for me? He's like, I'll make a logo for you. He's like, okay, well, can you make like three concepts and then I'll pick one? He's like, no, no, I'm going, I'm going to solve your problem and you will pay me. And he comes up with one logo after a lengthy research process, Steve Jobs. And, you know, you can use or not use a logo that a graphic designer makes for you. He ends up employing it and it becomes, you know, that's, that's how it goes. He was the face of Next for the entire duration of that company. And I like that idea. I like that it can be very clear cut. I like that there is a uh, conversation where two things happened here, right? One of them is that the, the conversation got focused on, there's a problem. You don't have a logo. You need a way to represent your brand. You recognize that this is a problem you're feeling. Sounds a lot like a lot of the expensive problem type stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast. Um, but then the second thing is this refocusing of the conversation away from one of the most bullheaded humans of all time, uh, Steve Jobs, right? Like, no, he said no to Steve Jobs and said, here's how we're going to do it. And Steve Jobs blinked and said, fair enough, Right. So for one, like, oh, my God, something got put over on Steve Jobs. Like, does that ever happen by anyone except Paul Rand? Um, but also, number two, that's what really differentiates consultative work from contractorial work, right? I've I can't tell you, every single client, every single client that Draft has had, they come to me with a problem. They think they have a problem. And I, the fundamental thing in the back of my head is, no, you don't. You don't actually have this problem. There's something underlying the problem. There's either a fear or sense of risk or somebody told you to come to me or, or something, right? And that doesn't mean that your feelings are invalid or that your ideas are nonsense, right? I, I want to be abundantly clear about that. What it means is that there's an opportunity to dig and diagnose and understand the real source of the thing. It's not that you have this weird, thinky, complicated thing going on. It's that your customers are pissed at you. It's that you're losing money to a competitor. It's that you are concerned about churn in some capacity. You're, you know, there's, there's some sort of usually negative feeling behind it, like fear, whatever. Or you're growing really hard and you want to step back and understand 
how to grow more deliberately and intentionally. That's another very common explanation for people coming to draft. It's like, oh, well, now I have a bucket of money. Now I can hire some consultants to try and help me out. And that's why consulting is not a bad thing. It just means you're hiring really smart people who can hopefully help you in a business capacity. That's what good consulting is. And consulting gets a bum rap because you end up hiring contractors that charge too much. It's not a consultant. One thing I'd love to elaborate on there is uh, uh, the concept you touched on of clients and prospects coming believing they have a problem, but not quite having a problem or understanding the problem. That's something that I dive into in my book on roadmapping projects. And my take on it is clients will approach us thinking that they have a problem, but what a client really has is a situation. They are experiencing some situation. There's inputs. They don't know what the problem is yet because they're too mired in it to actually diagnose what the issue is. Just like if you go to a doctor, you know what you're experiencing. You know, hey doc, I feel ill. You can't say, oh, you know what? I have these three things. Please prescribe me X, Y, Z. The doc needs to do a diagnosis, do a test, understand what the problem actually is before they could prescribe a solution. So I really like the distinction between clients come to you with a situation, something they're experiencing. Our job as a consultant is to unpack that and understand what the problem underlying that solution is. To jump off your other example, maybe there's concerns about churn. Well, okay, that might not be the problem. The problem might be we have terrible onboarding and we lose a ton of our customers because we aren't onboarding them. If we just attack the churn problem, we're attacking the wrong problem. We need to understand the situation. We have a high churn rate and then understand what the problem is. Lack of onboarding, lack of customer support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I think that all makes a lot of sense. What I'm kind of working towards and why we're we're doing this uh, particular episode uh, we went a really long time without actually talking about proposals, and uh, that's because the proposal is kind of immaterial. What you're doing is uh, creating a process that works towards the proposal. Here are the actual contents of my proposal. Every single proposal that I've ever done in the history of Draft does this. It is uh, a statement of the problem, um, and, I, and I speak to you. I say, this is prepared for John Doe, Jane Doe of XYZ Corporation, and then I pretend like I am sitting John or Jane down and laying out the problem. And I'd spend no more than five paragraphs and one page on this. I say, this is the problem. This is my reading of the problem. Here are the consequences of not actually tackling this problem. The problem is acutely felt here in this way. And then at the end of that, you segue into what you believe the solution is that will try and address this problem. And so the next thing that we're going to be talking about in the proposal is the solution to the problem and why it, it in particular is a solution to the problem. Because it's not enough to just say, you have a problem, I'm going to do wireframes. It's you have a problem, I'm going to do this. And this is usually I'm going to create detailed wireframes for this particular functionality and et cetera. Then the next part of my proposal is the outcomes. Um, what should you be able to do after the project is done? And it's not, you have wireframes, congratulations. That's a rather tautological outcome. <laughs> uh, you should at this point have wireframes, ideally. You don't have wireframes. It's like the Zelda music playing in the background. Like, no, nobody, you don't even ship those. What you need is a concrete strategy that you can hand off to any developer and get built out in order to more clearly understand the functionality of a product that's pleasurable and easy to use, right? That's the broadest, like, draftiest thing that I can possibly tell you that we do, right? But, like, 
Normally, I'll say, hopefully, it will end up reducing churn in these particular ways. Um, and then the final two bits of it are uh, like dates, like exactly when uh, we should expect kickoff payment. And, uh, da, 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 and I list out specific dates. The proposal has a due date. And then I list price. Um, and if you like that, you sign. I send an invoice. You pay me on time. If you don't pay me on time, the proposal becomes invalid. Uh, and then we have to write up another proposal. And the reason that we do that is so that I can actually plan cash flow effectively because I'm a business. I need to plan cash flow effectively. Uh, it's entirely possible a proposal will go invalid and then somebody else will, you know, uh, take my, my time instead. So um, the, the words of the kids these days slide into the DMs and steal that contract. They slide into the DMs and steal my contract and they pay me. Uh, you don't pay me. And so why are we having that conversation? Uh, but anyway, so that is that is the anatomy fundamentally of every proposal that I have ever made, right? And it's, I guess people think that's interesting. I, I don't know. It's, it usually never runs more than three pages. In fact, I can't remember a situation where it has run more than three pages. Six-month projects are three pages of proposal. It's just, here are all the deadlines. There you go. Is, is this satisfactory to you if it's not we change some things that's completely fine but like you know it's it's something that you just fudge yeah do you do separate statements of work from the contracts uh yeah so what i have is a master services agreement and that governs all the work you do with me for five years and that dictates all the nonsense legal stuff like payment force majeure um intellectual property transfer, like when I complete the work, I only, you only get my work upon full payment. Um, and you have to pay me up front in order to reserve my time. Just broad statementy things that we've talked about a lot on, on this. And so once that gets solidified, then I send along what's called a statement of work, uh, which is the proposal that I just spent a minute talking about. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I use my proposals run a bit longer in terms of I don't know if page count is the best uh, uh, analysis for this word count mine usually come in between 750 and 1500 words and I'll run through sections in a proposal like situation appraisal what exactly did they tell me was going on and just restate that in the client for all of these sections restate as much as I can in the client's own words and the client's own voice uh from situation appraisal, I'll move forward to objectives. What exactly are we aiming for? We could think of this as sort of the bookends of the project. The situation is what they came to me with. The objectives is what they're aiming for. Okay, great. The middle is diagnosing the problem, prescribing a solution, and doing a thing. After objectives, I'll move into measures of success. How exactly will we determine that this project has been a success or not? And this typically comes directly from the client's mouth. I'll ask the client, how will we know if this will be successful? What will we be measuring? Who will be in charge of measuring it? And their answers directly inform what those measures of success are, or tell me they're aiming for a measure of success that just is not possible, in which case, pre-proposal, I'll reset the expectations and say, you know what? In two months, we probably aren't going to be able to add $100,000 in revenue to your business. That's probably a year-long project. Let's uh, focus on a couple other things here in terms of measures of success. Following to that, I'll break out the value to the organization, typically anything where it either increases profit, increases revenue, decreases cost, or decreases time. 
And then I'll get into exactly what we'll be doing, the methodology and options. I like a three-option proposal, so I'll break down, hey, option one, we'll do this. Option two, we'll do one and this. Option three, we'll do one and two and this additional thing. And then I'll get into some more administrative things, what the timing looks like on the project. We'll kick off on this date, what the schedule looks like. It'll take this many weeks, what payment looks like. Hey, you need to pay ahead of time to reserve the time on my calendar. And that's about it. Uh, uh it runs through, uh, yeah, it, it covers some of the details that also are in the contract, but I enjoy having things like terms and conditions around fees, payment terms, uh, project scheduling, expiration in the proposal, as well as the contractor statement of work, just so people are exposed to it early on. And if there's any redlining or red flagging that's going to happen over the proposal, it hits during the proposal stage, not once they've accepted the proposal and we move towards contract. Yeah, I like a lot of that. The three-tiered bit, I've not done that until last week, and then I closed 30K of work with it. So, um, yes, more of that. Uh, three-tiered proposal looks exactly like the like classic base camp pricing grid where it's like, you know, the, the option for people who are price conscious, the option you want to make your margins on, and then the premium deluxe option where you have a good problem on your hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, just imagine this. You did a three-tier proposal and you brought in that much revenue. What if you did a 10-tier proposal? Mm-hmm. No. Um, so uh, one thing that I wanted to bring back in this that I think is very important is um, something you mentioned about kind of reflecting the client's language back to them. A lot of proposal writing is active listening. And one thing that I found myself, like I'll occasionally send proposals to uh, people that I'm talking to on this podcast for critique, and they'll reply back with, well, this is weird. Why do you have this here? And the answer is because it came up on a call, right? It's because I noticed it in a client, something like that. There was a a proposal I wrote uh, fairly recently where somebody, a client was extremely over-enthusiastic to get started, like more than anyone had any right to be. And so I viewed that as a potential drain on my time once like you actually pay me and we start to work together. And so I talked about, not only because it could be a drain on my time, but also because it kind of goes against optimization methodology. Like, optimization is an intentional, deliberate process that takes a long time and involves a lot of research. And if you're not in on that, go find another optimizer. There's a million JavaScript people on Upwork, right? Like, and no harm, no foul. Like, you just didn't find the right person right now and you're thinking the wrong things when you wanted me. And um, and I don't think that's bad. Uh, but I mentioned, so then I, I like outright mentioned in the proposal, like, this is draft. We are more like Nick Offerman's woodworking studio than Ikea. You know, we spend a lot of time whittling away at something and we need the time and space to be able to do that. And if you're a very move fast and break things company run. And, um, and they took the proposal, you know, like, and it's okay if they don't, because it means you avoided a weird, scary situation. Yes. Yes. I mean, leaping off of that point, I think, there's inherently as part of the human condition a fear of rejection and proposals just bring that out in such a great magnitude and really to be an effective consultant you need to become okay with the fact that not every proposal is going to be accepted and it might it it often isn't your fault it's they have a request or they have a need that you aren't able to meet and okay it's just two people with needs that aren't be able to met with each other let's Mm -hmm. go in separate directions yeah yeah and i think that I have compartmentalized my feelings around the proposal to after it gets sent. Like there's this indefinite period about all the things that can possibly go wrong with it. 
Um, but you can't be thinking about that when you're actually writing the proposal or you will lose it. You will. You have to negotiate from a position of abundance and confidence or you're just mm-hmm. not, you're not going to close it. Now, completely agreed. Jumping back again to using your client's voice and language, one small thing I started doing this year, I, rec- I since I work remotely with all of my clients, I'll have my initial qualifying calls, sort of that sanity check call, and then uh, uh, the initial call to assess whether we're going to be a good match or not. Over Zoom, I'll record that. And what I've started doing is then running those files, just the audio versions of it, through Rev.com giving me a transcript of the entire conversation. And so when it comes time to think about, okay, what exactly is it they're trying to have me solve? What language do they use? Listening through the audio is valuable and helps you get a sense of the emotional tenor of the voice and what they're sharing. But reading through it is also valuable because you're then able to say, okay, great, let me pull the section, put it in here, start building out my proposal of just copy-pasted blocks of text from this transcript. And then I find it easy to wordsmith it into that final proposal for that. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot where um you're you're kind of pulling out that kind of language. I do that in shorthand when I'm taking notes on the call and I just take an ungodly amount of notes. The benefit of that is that you get to see my fancy ass fountain pen on the video call. Mhm. That's a closer. A kind of like people are impressed by it. they notice seriously and it's tiny like how can you notice this thing on a Skype call? <laughs> but yeah, the more you pay attention to the more of your attention that I have on the phone call, the more likely it is the project is going to go well, I find. Um, even And that is independent from enthusiasm. It's related, but it's independent. If I don't have your attention, it's probably not going to go well. Now, and I've had things, and this verges a little bit from proposals, but I've had initial conversation calls with clients who don't turn on the webcam, don't want to do a video call, and... Earlier on, I was okay with that and more accommodating, but uh, uh, I've started seeing it more and more as a brown M&M, a red flag, and if somebody isn't willing to show their face on a video call so we could see each other eye to eye and assess like, what do you need done? Can I help? Is this something I can honestly help with? Let's talk through it. If we can't have that direct dialogue face-to-face, looking each other in the eye, it's probably not going to be a good proposal and it's probably not going to be a good client engagement. So I think there's a lot of value in having it be a face-to-face conversation, even if it's over webcam. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, what else do we need to be talking about in the actual proposal format? I feel like we've kind of handled everything that that I would think to integrate in there. Objection busting, is that a thing? I think objection busting is a thing. I typically use that in the situation appraisal and the measure of success and the value to the organization sections because I find objections will typically pop up around there. Hey, we're kind of worried about the cost or we don't know what the problem is. Well, that's part of the situation you're dealing with. Or, hey, we aren't sure how to measure success on this and that makes us worried. Well, let's define the measures in the proposal or define the measures beforehand and echo them in the proposal. So I think uh, uh, objection busting does play in here. One question I'd ask to you is, for people that are more on the contractor side of things, what would be one or two easy optimizations they can make to start moving their proposals in this direction towards being more of a consultant's proposal than a contractor's proposal? Number one thing is to try and unask clients questions with as much empathy and understanding as you possibly can. Like if they come in and say, we want this kind of work, it's tell me more about that. Like give me more about the background here. 
And then when you're doing active listening and reflecting those statements back to them, say, it sounds to me like this is the case. And maybe you're wrong, that's fine, but then you keep trying to chip away at it and you get more understanding, you ask more questions. That sort of diagnosis process is absolutely critical to establishing a consultative practice and not a contractorial's practice. Um, the other thing that I would recommend doing is pare back your proposal to be as short and to the point as humanly possible so that you are not clearly wasting the client's time. Um, designers hate this. They hate it. They want to talk so much about all the previous clients they've had and all the awards they've won and all the places they've been published and gone to speak. Nobody gives a shit. They don't. They care about what it's worth to their business. It, you think it's bad in the design industry? It is 10 times as bad in the construction industry. I was writing 40-page RFPs oh, where 30 pages were like, here are lists of the previous buildings we built. Here are our awards. Here is a resume for each individual person on the team we're proposing. Two pages describing the project. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So designers generally, they want to talk about themselves a lot and they want to like make a brand deck or something like that, like a pitch deck. I haven't made one of those in my entire career. And I guarantee you I'm making more as a designer than probably 99% of people that you know. That other 1% is making bonkers money and they get all the credit and publicity and stuff. But like all the, all the journeyman designers out there, no, no. And they're all, they're all sharing their logos and talking about how they were a young gun once. And I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I ban guns. Thank you. <laughs> Young or otherwise. <laughs> God. Uh, anyway, um, I hope that uh, we gave some sort of insight into how to write a proposal and how to kind of get to the point. Edit back your content a lot. I spend a lot of time editing my proposals and a lot of time running them by other consultants. Having a support network of other consultants who can hold your ideas in confidence and help you write a really damn good proposal, oh my God, hold them close. Like other independent consultants are tremendously valuable on this front, present company included. So yeah. Heart. No, completely agreed. And, and jumping back to your earlier point, I think across industries, there's a habit of putting more content into a proposal because of a feeling of riskiness or uncertainty on the consultant side. I'm not super confident in this or this project, so I'll put a lot of words in this proposal and hopefully that will make up for my lack of confidence in this. And that's the wrong way to approach it. If you're sort of covering up a lack of certainty or a lack of confidence with more words in a proposal, it's not going to land as solidly. And you're better off saying, hey, client, I know I said day X to get you this proposal, but you know I have four more questions that we really need to discuss and answer before I'm able to put together a good proposal. So we need to push back the delivery date. And can you email across these answers or let's schedule a time for a call? If you have that uncertainty, get more information from the client so you're able to write a better proposal. Yeah, yeah. Don't maybe don't talk about the delivery day pushback, but just be like, you know, if you're on if you don't feel hellbent about the proposal, here's a rule. If you don't feel hellbent about the proposal, go back and ask questions until you feel hellbent about the proposal. If you don't feel excited about the proposal, like you're dreading bidding on this work, it's not a good fit run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was about to say the exact same thing. If you have or if you have hesitancy around it, if you have that sense of dread around it, it's not a good fit. It's it's something you're going to regret. Please, please do not accept it. Yeah, if it, if it's not a good fit, don't accept it and go in that other direction. It's better to say no to a project, even if it gets to the late proposal stage, if you're not feeling it, than accept something and regret it down the line. Thank you.